Welcome to Faded Mates. This week, it's a hype video in podcast form for Brazen and the Beast. <laughs> I'm super excited about it, but I don't actually know how to make hype videos at all. <laughs> but I like watching them. So I just want you to imagine it's like me and like Megan Rapino and the entire U.S. women's soccer team being like, wait. Beast, <laughs> like like heavy. <laughs> that's that's like the mood I need you in right now, everybody. Oh, this is so nice. I'm so excited. Oh, <laughs> uh, so Sarah. Yes, Jen. <laughs> this is real weird. Welcome to Fate of Mates, everyone. <laughs> I don't actually have a co-host today. I have someone very special joining me who's going to talk to us about her new book. <laughs> Right? Where can we find you, Sarah? No, I'm kidding. Um, Sarah, <laughs> the reason that we are having this very special podcast, this interstitial, is your new book comes out next week, and I want everyone to know that Sarah was like, should we do this? Are you okay with it? And I was like, look, if we cannot hype ourselves on our own podcast, then like, really, what is it for? It's true. What would you do if you had a penis? <laughs> <laughs> Act the that Car- way. The Carrie Ryan uh, question is always like, just <laughs> what would you do if you were a dude? Like, okay. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, you channel your inner awesomeness and tell everybody about how great your new book is. So, Yeah, I have a new book out. Also, I don't write like a book every month, so it feels less like horrifying to me. Although it is slightly horrifying to spend a half an hour talking about my book to you guys. But I write books, you guys. You do. And I have one coming out. I think I have some good questions that I want us to talk about. Uh, Yeah. What's super weird is Jen has, like, prepared for this. So Jen read Brazen, what, like, two two or three months ago? Like, months ago. Right. And I I was just like, can we just, you know, talk about Hattie and Wit and, like, how we like competence porn and ladies with businesses and just that's that. Like, do 15 minutes on Brazen. And Jen was like, yeah, that's fine. And then this morning she was like, I have questions. I've been (laughs) rereading. like oh my god so I've got to tell you like I'm a big rereader but I love a book when you're reading it the first time and then you purposefully slow down because you know that you're coming to the end and you don't want it to end and that's what happened to me when I read this book and then I was like I'll just do some quick preparation I'll reread and then I was literally like I just now have to reread the whole thing because I'm enjoying it all over again. So that is like a very sweet spot. Well, I'm really glad. And you were reading an advanced copy where uh, there's a desk on a roof and some other problems. (laughs) That level of detail is not really my strong suit, so don't worry. For those of you who don't know... Um, there are advanced copies of romance novels that get sent around to, you know, important, very important journalists that say Kirkus reviews, <laughs> like my friend Jen, um, but to librarians and to booksellers and to early reviewers, people who have blogs and, you know, Instagram influencers and things like that. Um, but those copies have a big sign on, stamp on them that say, like, advanced, uncorrected proof, like, check the quotes against the final document. And Mostly my books don't change a huge amount after this, um, but in this particular case, while when I was reading Typeset Pages, which is what is bound up for early reviewers, I discovered that I had originally written a scene inside the warehouse where, the, where everybody was at desks, and then I moved <laughs> it to a rooftop, and at one point, one of the characters stands up from his desk on the roof. <laughs> They do spend a lot of time outside in this book, Sarah. So it's fine. true, mostly outside. But the um, but what was funny is I was like, God damn it, somebody's gonna review this on Goodreads and say there's a desk on the roof in this book. 
And sure enough. <laughs> <laughs> there, there would be. Instantly yeah. it happened. So. so Sarah, before we start talking about some of the particulars, why don't you tell us about Wit and Hattie? Oh, Wit and Hattie. Oh, they're so um, good. I haven't talked a lot about this book, so now I'm sort of, I'm going to just stumble through, but... That's okay. Um, Wit, this is the second book in my Bare Knuckle Bastard series. Wit is the quiet bastard. So Devil, who's the char- the main character, the hero of Wicked in the Wallflower, is very verbal. Like, he... He always has something to say. He's very quick-witted. He never he there's just never a moment when when devil can't like cut you with words. Right. Um wit is a silent grunty. Oh my god. Brute. Like oh my god, the he's grunting bru- and the yeah, growling. He's a grunty, mm. growly bruiser of a hero. Um, who I invented way back in Day of the Duchess. And I was like, oh, it's going to be so great. He's going to be, like, super silent and, like, basically only make Tom Hardy grunting noises. <sighs> um, but then I had to write a book where there <laughs> had to be dialogue, <laughs> which was complicated. Anyway, so Wit is the strong, silent type. Um, and the way the setup of the series is that um, these two brothers and their badass sister are the bare knuckle bastards, and they run Covent Garden, which is not the greatest neighborhood of London. Um, it's filled with rookeries, which are where very very poor people in London lived in the 1900s. Um, I'm sorry, in the 19th century, and um, they run a rookery, and they are basically like kings and queen of the rookery and they are they take care of the people in the rookery there's running water in their rookery there's mm-hmm. there's a the children learn to read in their rookery there's a church in their rookery like they it's a it's a community that's taken care of despite the fact that there's very little money there and wit is the savior his his na- name is destiny his <laughs> name is actually savior um he's named for the orphanage where he or for the hospital where he was born um and he is um and he is the savior he cares very deeply about keep protecting his people the people yeah. he loves the people who he is responsible for his family um and ultimately his love um his love who is hattie um, who will take none of his shit. <laughs> like, okay, so let me talk about how I, I don't want to, like, spoil anything, so it's, like, really tricky because everybody just needs to pre-order and get ready, but <laughs> it, it does have this amazing beginning where it is the eve of Hattie's 29th birthday, and she yes. is determined to make it the year of Hattie, and she yeah. has a lot of plans. And that really spoke to me as a reader because I feel like I, I'm i a person who's like, okay, I need to change something. How am I going to do it? And then, it, right, like that really speaks to me. And it also, I think, speaks to the kind of character she is. So she's getting ready to go into her carriage with, with her, her best, best friend for the night of the plan. She's finally going to, like, execute this plan. And she finds mm-hmm. Beast, right? She finds Wit, like bound up and shot or on the bottom he's not of her. shot he's not shot but he is bound up he's unconscious and yeah. bound up on the floor of her carriage and exceedingly inconvenient yes hattie has fucking plans yes like and they do not involve handsome unconscious men Oh, God, and I love it when she, like, so she, you know, her friend Nora's like, don't even look at him. And she's like, I kind of want to look at him. Like, who is this guy? And that, like, he's just so beautiful. Oh, yeah. So Beast is, so, I mean, Beast, name is Destiny. Beast is, like, the hottest. Of course. Human being ever. Like, 
Sure. Ever. Ever. <laughs> so Empirically, I think she even um, says. Yeah. Like, she's like, there's just no, there's no getting around it. This man is stunningly attractive. It's what's great about this is I, of course, I think a lot of readers like really love a story where it's like just like jump starts, right? Like it's like they're sort of I, I sometimes I like draw this like shape with my hand. Like you can have this slow ramp up, but this book instead it's like falling off a cliff, right? <laughs> like it's just all action at the beginning. And I think it really sets the stage for like an exciting book. So Sarah I do have some questions for you. I've like kind of prepared them. Um, one of the things that I, I think is really interesting in this book is one of her big plans is about their family business, which is mm. like a, a, a shipping business. And one of the things we see a lot of in, well, I think there's like actually been a, a shift towards like working women in historicals. Yes. Um, this is something I've noticed in a, in a lot of books. Why do you think that that's something that, like, we see popping up in historicals now? Like, how is that informing who we are now as women? Yeah, I think we're starting to see more working women across the board in in romance. Look, we've seen working women since the dawn of romance, but... Um, in the early days of romance, in the 70s and 80s and early 90s, the women were often like secretaries or, you know, teachers or nurses. And now we're starting to see women in all walks of life. Like we're starting to see women who want to own businesses and women who are running running their own companies and running their own show. Mm-hmm. Um, women who are, you know, chefs and restaurateurs and uh, police officers and, you know, like every... You can find a romance about, you know, Tessa Bailey likes to say, like, who do you want to be today? The reason why romance is so great is because you can say, who do you want to be today? And you can read that person in their best life. Yeah. And now you can say, who do I want to be today? I want to be a woman who runs, like, a hand. I want to be a hand letterer. Like, well, Kate Glaiborne's got a book coming for you. You know, I want to be a wedding planner. Like, there's that. So I also think uh, setting women Working women in historicals allows you to have the very real conversation about women at work now in the world here now in 2019, right? Yeah. You get to have the conversation about, like, equal access, equal pay, like, workplace dynamics. Like, you get to have the conversation about, like, only, you know – 5% of Fortune 500 CEOs are women. Well, like, obviously, I'm not having that exact conversation with Hattie, but Hattie wants to run her father's business and is the perfect person to do it, but is prevented from being able to do it by virtue of her being a woman. Yeah. No other reason. No other reason. Everybody acknowledges, like, her father even says, like, if you were a boy, it would be yours. Um, her brother is essentially her competition for the family business, right? Yeah. Like, it's it should go to him because he's a, a man, but she is, like, making this case for herself. And one of the things that I thought was really interesting about Augie, about her brother, is so often in, in romance, like, we see that, like, this person is going to end up a hero. Like, and Augie's never going to end up a Sarah no. McLean hero. Never. No. Right? Like, no one's going to be calling you and being like, but what about Augie? The way they still do, <laughs> right? The way they still do with... um Benedict. Yeah, with ben- right? That's never going to happen. So what is it like to write 
like kind of purposefully write in like an anti-hero in the heroine story like as a family member as opposed to like a I don't know an outside villain or whatever well sometimes look Augie's not a villain no he's not he's not smart he's spoiled he makes bad choices he's super entitled he's all the things you know frankly I mean like he's all the things that can come of having just unchecked money and privilege yeah right because that's what he has his father has a life, their father has a life period. He's so, he has been such a successful shipping magnate that he literally received a life period for his successes and like the benefits that he brought to the Docklands and to London and to the UK. And so, you know, they're the children. So Augie sort of has like all the benefits of being a peer with none of the responsibilities because he's never going to have to be an earl. He's yeah. never going to have to sit in. In uh, Parliament, he's never going to have to do anything. He can just be idly rich. Yeah. And so he has this, like, kind of thuggish buddy. And, like, the two of them, you know, they just are idly rich. Right. And they make stupid mistakes. Um, and they get themselves way too deep into um, what is ultimately the conflict between uh wit and his estranged brother well and that's the other reason it's really interesting is because there's this setup like you know where of course though unlike augie ewan is going to be a hero right but i am fine with it because it's clear to me he's already been paying the price for being a jerk for like two decades oh yeah ewan ewan (laughs) is being put through the ringer every day I, and I need you to know that I appreciate that because he deserves it. He's, as you like to say, he's been in cold storage for a long time. <laughs> one of the reasons you are not only my friend, but one of my favorite authors is that you have a finely tuned understanding of how much, how much suffering someone needs to do when they have done wrong. And Ewan has been in like Siberia storage, which is great. But yeah, I mean, like sort of that role of family. And I think it's also really interesting because of course, in historicals and in contemporaries, we get like doubting family members. Are you sure you're really going to be able to do that thing? But Mm -hmm. you know, this act, like when your family is kind of actively holding you back, that is really hard to take. And I think it's what makes her you know, even more. Yeah, and it's really disappointing, too, when your family, like, in this particular, in Hattie's case, she knows that she's the best person for the job. Her father, everybody, her brother knows, her father knows, Mm -hmm. everyone knows she's the best person for the job. And she's still, that's not enough. Yeah. And then she gets, every time she gets even, like, remotely close to proving it again or bearing it bearing fruit that, you know, her hopes bearing fruit they sort of smack her down again. Right. And we've all been there, right? Like, where we're the only one, or rather, we believe in ourselves. And, like, look, let's be clear. Hattie has a ride-or-die bestie. Who's oh, yeah. Like, I will always be there. I will always drive. The, I will I will drive your getaway car. Yeah. It's literally Nora's <laughs> job. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um. So, you know, luckily, Hattie has a Nora. And that was really fun. I didn't, I didn't. Um, I I have not written a best friend, I think, ever. Like, a yeah. real deal best friend. I've written a lot of sisters. You have, and you're, I think, a lot of your male characters, you're, a lot of your heroes have best friends or really tight friends that way. But yeah. it was it, that was interesting to me, too, because Nora also felt like something new for you, right? Yeah. Yeah. Exciting. 
Okay, I only have a couple more questions because we have something exciting happening at the end of this. But okay, <laughs> Sarah, I like to think that I am a, a like a smart reader who can figure things out. But there is one thing, and I like like it's literally been killing me. Okay, I'm so of this question no, already. You, no, I don't think you should be. I think you're going to have an answer, and if not, you're going to write one in. So it's okay. Mm. Um, <laughs> Felicity is an expert at locks. Mm-hmm. Hattie is an expert at knots. What is Grace going to be an expert at? <laughs> I mean, I've literally, I was like, something mechanical, puzzle. Like, I like literally have been ra- like racking my brains because I can't figure out what would be like the third thing, right? Um. Well, so here's the deal. Grace has a weapon. So all the Baronical Bastards have weapons. Yes. Remember, Grace is both heroine and bastard. Sure. Right? So yeah. she is... Like all, like all ending Sarah McLean heroines in a series, like Grace has to be all things. Yes, um, she's and and each of the bare knuckle bastards, um, Wit and Devil, both at certain points in their books have basically said like we're nothing compared right. to what Grace is. Yeah, so I don't want to give too much away about Grace. I will say Grace has a weapon. Um. And <laughs> wait, so before you say anything more, because it's yeah. interesting because I was also thinking about that, right? So Devil has like his, um, his stick, st- his staff, right? With like the knife in it. And mm-hmm. Devil has his like, like a. Yeah, where's a cage a holster. of knives. Yeah. yeah. But you know what else Devil has or what Wit has is he has his two watches. Yeah. Right. And so I was like. I don't know. You don't have to answer, but everybody else, you could be watching for it because I was really interested <laughs> in this idea that like all of the heroines in this series show like a proficiency with some sort of thing. I mean, that's like both kind of symbolic, right? I mean, Felicity's really unlocking herself and unlocking Devil and, and like unlocking this future for herself. And Hattie, on the other hand, is like desperately trying to like hook on and tie herself onto this future that she wants. Right. So like those made sense to me, right? Like I was very proud of your Lisa Claypas like like right use of talismans and symbols, right? My talismans. But yeah, I sometimes try and figure out what the third one is, and I was like, <laughs> oh, what's it gonna be? Um, well, you don't have to tell me. Okay. No, but I will say this: she is Grace is um, an expert in many, many, many things. Like Grace is Grace is Grace. Like she's the queen. Yeah, and you know, but there there are a lot of things about Grace that I think are really interesting. Grace is a late. We know this already. She's a lady bare knuckle boxer. Um, so you know, she and she runs a brothel, and she has like uh, like lieutenants. Yeah, I mean, I think that um, Grace is, is Grace's expertise is the is in the physical. Like she is yeah. a very physical heroine in a way that Felicity is very intellectual, oh, yeah. right. and Hattie is very like focused and like business minded. Also, right? Grace, you know, to use a Cressley Cole term, Grace is Josie, right? Squeeze it till it breaks. Yeah, but also always one step ahead of everybody. Except maybe you and I don't know. Because we'll you're still writing. <laughs> okay, back to Hattie and Wit though. So my my last question, and again, it's I don't want it to be spoilery, but another thing, I feel like we in Romance Landia, and you and me for sure, like love a hero who says mine. And we mm. love a hero who has who's like kind of possessive and caretaking. Mm-hmm. And I wonder like if you could talk about the evolution of 
your heroines, like over time, what I see are like you creating heroines who can accept that, but also are not going to be controlled by that. Right. You can't ultimately, right? Like, yes, it's deeply appealing when a hero says mine, 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 and all my heroes ultimately do, right? Right. But it's not mine. It's you're mine and I'm yours. And in order for that to be the case, the heroine has to be strong enough to say, you don't get to have me if I don't get to have you too. Right. And so the evolution of, I think probably, you know, my friend Louisa likes to say, like, the Sarah McLean ethos is like, and then she rescues him right back. Mm-hmm. Like, and that's, you know, which is from Pretty Woman. But, um, you know, that's the whole, that's the whole of it. And the only way that you can sort of rescue the hero, the mine hero, the caretaking hero is to say, like, I'm yours whether I'm, whether you're touching me or whether you're with me or not right right like you have to you have to let me be you fell for me as an ent- as a as an entity as as myself and i have to be myself first and yeah. then only then do we work together yeah. um so you know her- sarah mclean heroines would be totally fine on their own right um and are just better for you know having right a, a partner well and a partner who respects them ultimately yeah. right yeah. So I think that's like a really important part of of like why like why it all works, right? But I definitely think that that's even though that's always been the case with your books. I mean, I've reread like Nine Rules probably three times this year because I love it so much. But Callie is still like in the ballrooms, right? Like mm. you have your evolution as a writer. It's like that core story is sometimes the same, but like where you're placing those stories and the kinds of, you know, the evolution of like heroes and heroines and like their dramas and dilemmas. I think it's like really, like you're not a writer who's like, I'm just writing the same thing every time. No, I wish, sometimes I wish I were. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I do, I don't know if that's, I don't do that. So I don't know if it's easier, but I do feel like, it's always like I'm writing into the darkness for, you know, 50,000 words <laughs> before yeah. I'm like, oh, this is who I'm writing. Although I will say Hattie came real clear to me mm-hmm. real fast. Um, she's probably my most personal heroine. Like I I just I mean, there's a lot about her that's a lot like me. Um, that said, I think. Um, no, you're right. Like the Sarah McLean heroine has their DNA is Callie's DNA is Hattie's DNA. Um, the strand is there, the strain right. is there, it's the family tree, but, um, no, I, you know, when you ask the question about heroines who have jobs, right? Yeah. Um, that just start. that sort of, I mean, I feel like I've written, half of my heroines have had jobs, you know, Mara runs an orphanage, Chase is Chase. Yes. Um, uh, what's her name? Sophie runs a bookstore, um, Serafina is a like runs a collection of taverns, right? And then you know now we have Hattie who cares really deeply about about running running a real business like a she wants to be basically like a magnet, yeah. Um, but the idea now is that I just can't. I don't. I want to. I'm happier outside of ballrooms than I am inside of ballrooms. Yeah, because I feel like then you can really set a heroine free. Like yeah. a ballroom is very cloying. It's very it traps a heroine, and like they're super useful. There's a ball 
in there is a sure. ballroom scene in this book. Like I haven't given up beautiful dresses. <laughs> right. Um, Madame Hebert still makes dresses for all my heroines, but um, there is something really compelling to me about like taking the taking the heroine out of the ballroom and setting her down like in the streets. Yeah. And saying like, okay, you want to be a strong, like you want to you want to live on your own and like be strong, like be strong where you have to be strong. I when I let the last time I read Nine Rules, there are one part we like joke about sweet rain. And that's not the thing. <laughs> that's not the thing that you would never put in a book anymore. There's this one scene in particular where Kelly is fighting with um, ugh, what's his name? And like Ralston. You know, Ralston. I'm like, how did I forget that? Because I love him. Fucking Ralston. She's fighting with Ralston and she says something to him about like your sister is facing the most like difficult time of her life. Yeah. Right? And I was like... Is she, though? Yeah. You, Sarah, now <laughs> would never write that line anymore. No. Right? That's where I see, like, no. the changes. Yeah. And we don't... We shouldn't cut that. That's not, like... That's yeah. real. Like, that's an evolution. Yeah. That's an evolution of me as, like, a person, right? I wrote Callie when I was in my 20s. I'm 40 now. Like, life yeah. is different for me now. I've seen more. I've done more. Yeah. Um, it's an evolution of the world. I was I wrote that book twelve years ago. The world was different twelve sure. years ago. Um, women's place in the world surely was the same, but it didn't feel so terrifying twelve years right. ago. Um, right. And on top of it, romance was different twelve years ago. Yeah, absolutely. Right? I say all the time, like I feel like Nine Rules is my homage to. The real regencies, like the yeah. old, like big regencies, like yeah, big ballroom regencies. Like I feel like Stephanie Lawrence and like Julia Quinn yes. and Eloisa James, like the kind of like doyens of the regency. That's what I was reading. Lisa, Lisa's like most ballroomy books, yeah. Um, but now it's like Derek Craven forever, man. <laughs> And that's why it's really funny because every time I read Nine Rules, like, that's the line where I think, this is how you know Sarah's changed. Yeah, I mean, well, I also was learning to write romance in that book. Of course. That's my first romance novel. I mean, I wrote a YA before that, but, like, that's my first romance novel. I looked through it a couple of, maybe a year ago, and I was like, wow, there's a lot in this book, a lot packed in. Yeah. And because I was, like, trying to figure it out. Like, what do you, how do you do this? Yeah. You know, I know a lot of people love Callie and love Nine Rules, and I hope that they will see that Hattie is, like, Callie's oh, yeah. evolved. Like, there, she is a natural evolution from Ka- from Callie. Oh, absolutely. Um, you know, by ver- uh, first of all, she's, you know, they're both um, fat heroines. Like, they both... On the shelf, right? Yeah, they're both on... There's a lot of similar... They both sort of make a list, even though it's it's slightly mm-hmm. different A different list, list, yeah. Yeah, I think Hattie's, like... Callie's cooler, younger sister. Yeah. Okay, Sarah, I'm going to ask you one more question. And I've been interviewing a lot of authors. And this is like a question I really like. I love I love asking people about their work in general, which is, what's something you wish people would ask you when they were asking you about writing or asking you about your books? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know. People are like, that's a shitty question, Jen. I'm like, no, it's a great question. You can um, think about it. What do I wish people would ask me? I I'm trying to think like what are what are good what what have other people said? 
maybe you are like you we already talk so much about all the things we think you know what i wish people would ask me i wish people would ask me more about where i want to go like what i want the books to be 10 years from now 20 years from now I don't know okay. that I have a good answer for that. That's, now that I've said that, I'm like, well, what does that mean? I mean, obviously, I want to be writing 10 years from, from now. But, like, I think romance, and I've said this a thousand times as part of the podcast, but romance does so much important work in the world that I want I want romance to continue to have the kind of powerful impact that it had on me as a kid. Like, I think yeah. I started reading romance when I was – you know, I've said it before, too young to be reading romance, but, like, I wasn't too young to be reading romance. Romance taught me that, like, women had agency, that heroines were proactive, that you could expect parody in a relationship, that you could expect love and devotion and intellectual stimulation from a partner, that you could expect sexual agency and sexual pleasure from a partner and that kind of lesson is so important yeah and what I wish people would ask is that like I wish people would say why should why is why are the books good for us yeah and too often they ask us are the books good for us and I want them to just take that and say tell me why Tell me what romance does for us. Like, why does it it builds it builds us into strong, smart, proactive, yeah. demanding women and people. people and right. we should expect that. We should expect it and want yeah. it of our children, especially our daughters. And well, and that's Hattie, right? Yeah. Like, that's Hattie doing it for herself, and that's why it's such a great. Like, such a great read. She's such an amazing... I mean, I love both of them. I really love both of them so much, and everyone else will, too. So, well, the reason why people love Wit... I mean, Wit's very grunty and delicious, and, like, if you love Tom Hardy, you're gonna love Wit. But, you know, Wit just gets... He just gets knocked on his ass by Hattie from from the beginning. drop. Oh, yeah. It was really fun to write. It's a fun book, I think. It's a really... It's it's me. It's my homage to old school romances a little bit. It's There's a lot of Cressley in it. Oh, yeah. Um, And... He punches a wall, and I was like... (laughs) (sighs) Wait, he does? Oh, yeah. (laughs) Now I can't remember when. (laughs) Okay, he punches a wall. Oh, wait, he does punch a wall. Now I know why. I was like, oh... Yeah. He looks at the moon. Yeah, at one point, like, he's uh, in an early draft, like, he wanted to bring her the heads of her enemies. Like, he, like he's very, like, he's very, like, Cressley. And it's because I've been reading, you know, sure. IAD this whole time. But um, there's a lot of Cressley in it. There's a lot of old school in it. It's really an adventure novel, I think, in a way that, like, there's a lot more that goes on in here that is adventure than in any of my other books. Yeah, it's um, great. So it was really fun to write. And thank you for asking me about it. Thank you guys for tolerating us. For <laughs> All right. So, Sarah, something amazing is going to happen as we, like, sign yeah. off. Why don't you tell us about that? Yeah, I'm really excited about this. So, audiobooks, I know that a lot of the Faded Mates listeners listen on audio because we love Robert mm. Peckoff so much. We do. I have, like, the Robert Peckoff of ladies um, <laughs> as my narrator uh, these days. Her name is Justine Eyre, and I think she's so perfect. She's, like, the perfect narrator 
for the bare knuckle bastards because she's got this sort of like gravelly, like she's got a great voice. Voice. Um, and so Justine has narrated my book since Never Judge a Lady by her cover, um, for which she won the like best audiobook of the year award from her narration group. And so she's narrated this and HarperCollins has given us, Avon has given us the first 10 minutes of um, Brazen and the Beast, which I have not listened to yet, but I <laughs> hope that you all enjoy. Um, you'll get. 10 minutes, the sort of sneak peek of the beginning, you'll find Wit unconscious in Hattie's carriage along with Hattie. Mm -hmm. You'll meet Nora, who is possibly my favorite secondary character that I've ever written. And I hope you love it. Well, they're going to love it. So pre-order, we'll put links in the show notes. Um, Brazen comes out next week. Thank you for reading, you guys. You all better be ready because it's going to be amazing. <laughs> and wait, what's happening next week? Next week is Dacian's. I don't know where we are, Sarah. I know, I'm I like, know it's I, so torn. I'm, it's I know. ridiculous. We're just... We're, whatever's I happening know. after that is what's happening and you're going to exactly. be there for it. <laughs> just follow. Just follow us. Also, I'm going to say I'm actually going to London for release week. So um, follow me everywhere and I'll post pictures of all the places in the books and um, you know maybe seek out I don't know Wit's house <laughs> there you go I Bam. know watch out Tom Hardy <laughs> <laughs> oh and we'll put in show notes the link to the video that I show that I send to Jen all the time of Tom Hardy grunting. Um, so I can't believe we haven't already, but this is the I time. know, well, because he's grunted so much during the podcast already. Bless his little yeah. grunting soul. Okay. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jen. You're being nice to me. Thank you. Chapter One. September 1837. Mayfair. In 28 years and 364 days, Lady Henrietta Sedley liked to think that she'd learned a few things. She'd learned, for example, that if a lady could not get away with wearing trousers, an unfortunate reality for the daughter of an earl, even one who had begun life without title or fortune, then she should absolutely ensure that her skirts included pockets. A woman never knew when she might require a bit of rope or a knife to cut it. She'd also learned that any decent escape from her Mayfair home required the cover of darkness and a carriage driven by an ally. Coachmen tended to talk a fine game when it came to keeping secrets, but they were ultimately beholden to those who paid their salaries. An important addendum to that particular lesson was this. The best of allies was often the best of friends. And, perhaps first on the list of things she had learned in her lifetime, was how to tie a Carrick Bend knot. She'd been able to do that for as long as she could remember. With such an obscure and uncommon collection of knowledge, one might imagine that Henrietta Sedley would have known precisely what to do in the likelihood she discovered a human male bound and unconscious in her carriage. One would be incorrect. In point of fact, Henrietta Sedley would never have described such a scenario as a likelihood. True, she might have been more comfortable on London's docks than in its ballrooms, but Hattie's impressive collection of life experience lacked anything close to a criminal element. And yet, here she was, pockets full, dearest friend at her side, 
standing in the pitch dark on the night before her 29th birthday, about to steal away from Mayfair for an evening of best laid plans, and Lady Eleonora Maidwell whistled, low and unladylike at Hattie's ear. Daughter of a duke and the Irish actress he loved so well that he'd made her a duchess, Nora had the kind of brashness that was allowed in those with impervious titles and scads of money. There's a bloke in the gig, Hattie. Hattie did not look away from the bloke in question. Yes, I see that. There wasn't a bloke in the gig when we hitched the horses. No, there wasn't. They'd left the hitched and most definitely empty carriage in the dark rear drive of Sedley House, not three quarters of an hour earlier, before hiking upstairs to exchange carriage hitching dresses for attire more appropriate for their evening plans. At some point between corset and coal, someone had left her an extraordinarily unwelcome package. Seems we would have noticed a bloke in the gig, Nora said. I should think we would have, came Hattie's distracted reply. This is really just awful timing. Nora cut her a look. Is there a good time to find a man bound and unconscious in one's carriage? Hattie imagined there wasn't, but he could have selected a different evening. This is a terrible birthday gift. She squinted into the dark interior of the carriage. Do you think he's dead? Please don't let him be dead. Silence, then a thoughtful. Does one store dead men in carriages? Nora reached forward, her coachman's coat pulling tight over her shoulders, and poked the possibly dead man in question. He did not move. He's not moving, she added with an unhelpful shrug. Could be dead. Hattie sighed, removing a glove and leaning into the carriage to place two fingers to the man's neck. I'm sure he's not dead. What are you doing? Nora whispered urgently. If he's not, you'll wake him. That wouldn't be the worst thing in the world, Hattie pointed out. Then we could ask him to kindly exit our conveyance and we could be on our way. Oh, yes, this brute seems like precisely the kind of man who would immediately do just that and not immediately take his revenge. He'd no doubt doff his cap and wish us a fine good evening. He's not wearing a cap, Hattie said, unable to refute any of the rest of the assessment of the mysterious, likely dead man. He was very broad and very solid, and even in the darkness she could tell that this wasn't a man with whom one took a turn about a ballroom. This was the kind of man who ransacked a ballroom. What do you feel? Nora pressed. No pulse, though she wasn't exactly sure where one would find a pulse. But he's warm. Dead men were not warm, and this man was very warm, like a fire in winter the kind of warm that made someone realize how cold she might be. Ignoring the silly thought, had he moved her fingers down the column of his neck, to the place where it disappeared beneath the collar of his shirt, where the ridge of his shoulder and the slope of the rest of him met in a fascinating indentation. Anything now? Quiet! Hattie held her breath. Nothing. She shook her head. Christ! It wasn't a prayer. Hattie couldn't have agreed more, but then, there, a small flutter. She pressed a touch more firmly. The flutter became steady, slow, even. I feel it, she said. He's alive, she repeated herself. He's alive, she exhaled, long and relieved. He's not dead. 
Excellent, but it doesn't change the fact that he's unconscious in the carriage and you have somewhere to be. Nora paused. We should leave him and take the curricle. Hattie had been planning for this particular excursion on this particular night for a full three months. This was the night that would begin her 29th year. The year her life would become her own. The year she would become her own. And she had a very specific plan for a very specific location at a very specific hour for which she had donned a very specific frock. And yet, as she stared at the man in her carriage, specific seemed not at all important. What seemed important was seeing his face. Clinging to the handle at the edge of the door, Hattie collected the lantern from the upper rear corner of the carriage before swinging back out to face Nora, whose gaze flickered immediately to the unlit container. Nora tilted her head. Hattie, leave him. We'll take the curricle. Just a peek, Hattie replied. The tilt became a slow shake. If you peek, you'll regret it. I have to peek, Hattie insisted, casting about for a decent reason, ignoring the odd fact that she was unable to tell her friend the truth. I have to untie him. Not necessarily, Nora pointed out. Someone thought he was best left tied up, and who are we to disagree? Hattie was already reaching into the pocket of the carriage door for a flint. What of your plans? There was plenty of time for her plans. Just a peek, she repeated, the oil in the lantern catching fire. She closed the door and turned to face the carriage, lifting the light high, casting a lovely golden glow over. Oh my, Nora choked back a laugh. Not such a bad gift after all, it seems. The man had the most beautiful face Hattie had ever seen. The most beautiful face anyone had ever seen. She leaned closer, taking in his warm bronze skin, the high cheekbones, the long straight nose, the dark slashes of his brows, and the impossibly long lashes that lay like sin against his cheeks. What kind of man? She trailed off, shook her head. What kind of man looked like this? What kind of man looked like this and somehow landed in the carriage of Hattie Sedley, a woman who was very unused to being in the vicinity of men who looked like this? You're embarrassing yourself, Nora said. You're staring and your jaw has gone fully slack. Hattie closed her mouth but did not stop staring. Hattie, we have to go. A pause then. Unless you've changed your mind. The casual question brought Hattie back to the moment, to her plan. She shook her head, lowered the lantern. I haven't. Nora sighed and placed her hands on her hips, staring past Hattie into the carriage. You get his bottom and I'll take his top then. She looked to a shadowed alcove behind her. He can resume consciousness there. Hattie's heart pounded. We can't leave him here. We can't? No. Nora slid her a look. Hattie, we can't take him with us just because he looks like a Roman statue. Hattie blushed in the darkness. I hadn't noticed. You lost the power of speech. She cleared her throat. We can't take him because Oggy left him here. Nora's lips flattened into a perfect straight line. You don't know that. I know, Hattie said holding the lantern near the rope at the man's wrists and sweeping it down to the place where he was bound at the ankles. Because August Sedley can't tie a carrick bend worth a damn, and I fear that if we leave this man here, he'll find his way loose and head straight for my useless brother. 
That, and if the stranger didn't find his way loose, who knew what Oggy would do to him? Her brother was as cabbage-headed as he was reckless, a combination that routinely required Hattie's intervention, which, incidentally, was a significant reason for her decision to claim her 29th year as her own. And still, here her infernal brother was, ruining everything. Unaware of Hattie's thoughts, Nora said, Recently unconscious or no, this doesn't look like a man who loses in a fight. The understatement was not lost on Hattie. She sighed, reaching in and hanging the now glowing lantern on its peg, taking the opportunity to cast a long, lingering look at the man in her carriage. Hattie Sedley had learned something else in her 28 years, 364 days. If a woman had a problem, it was best she solve it herself. She pulled herself up into the carriage, stepping carefully over the man on the floor, before looking back at wide-eyed Nora on the drive below. Come on, then. We'll drop him on our way.